This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today in person is Mr. Martin Fry. He is the co-founder, co-owner, and chief designer of Orwork. Martin, so good to chat with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. For me, the first time in Los ever Angeles. in Los Angeles. So, okay, that's already something. What do, you, what do you think as a designer? What mm. do you think? I mean, it just arrived yesterday. From what I have seen up to now, it's amazing. Is like it, every word, everything that you read, you know, every um, uh, street name, you know, everything sounds familiar. So, in a way, I have been here before because I've seen many movies. And as, as we know, it's, it's a city that is famous. Um, but of course, it's yet a different thing if you're stand, standing on Monica, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, that's what I did in the morning with a little walk, uh, you know, uh, through Beverly Hills. So, but you know, I know, I, I understand that there's a lot more to discover and I probably have to come uh, again next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is there's so many people in the area that love your designs but they represent different neighborhoods. You know, there's the people in downtown that love Orwork and the people out in Malibu and the people in Beverly Hills. And it would be so great if you could go and see the lifestyles that they're taking your watches in. Because I think what's so great about Orwork is that you're not really inspired by anything but what you love and, and your imagination. And that's been an interesting journey, right? Because when you started out, you had this very unique thing. And no one really understood what it was. And that meant that it wasn't able to fall into any existing lifestyle. So you had to wait the long time before people sort of could understand what your lifestyle is or slowly incorporate into theirs. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you've obviously always tried to be original, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, the first thing is uh, if you create something, uh, you know, that you create it, you know, with what you uh, like to be the, the coolest thing uh, ever. So so it's it's kind of... You know, uh, simple uh, to do that. You know, you just do it the way you like it most. And uh, then the way I learned it, of course, uh, with my art background, is that, that everything is interesting and you have to study everything. You have to look at it uh, precisely and see what, what, what comes together in something, you know, to make, what makes it that, that it is, you know. And so that's, that's actually uh, what you do first, you know. So what is, uh, what is a watch? What does it represent? What, what is actually uh, the thing that it measures, you know, and so on. So there's a lot of themes that come together in, uh, in that machine, in that small machine, or in a bigger clock as well, obviously. But uh, yeah, so, so you analyze it, and then you try to make your own comment on it. So as a watch designer, what I found is that every single one has a unique way that they came to designing watches. Very few people are like, I went to school to design watches, and that's what I do. So we've had a lot of, you know, the world's best watch designers on the show now, including you. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how you got to this journey. Sure. So let's sort of go backwards. You, you said you're an artist. Let's talk maybe about your, your formal education. What was that like? What did you get educated? Well, I actually, after, the, after school, I went to the first, uh, you know, year, the four course, as it's called in, in Swiss German. Um, this has a, you know, a pretty tough test, um, and you are really lucky if you get in. This is like high school? After yes, high school? absolutely. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, then a, a whole new uh, life starts, in a way, because 
um, art, drawing, you know, these things, they are interesting, they have a certain value, you know, in your school, in, the, in, in, in regular school, let's say, um, but it's not, not something that important. It's not right. something that, it's not that you focus on. It's not valued academically. And when you go to art school, that changes all of a sudden. And, and you also meet other people who, uh, who think the same way. So you would draw as a kid? Uh, I did draw. And it's kind of like a, it can work as an escape plan, you know. You, you, you continue to somehow discover the world the way you do it as a child. Um, a child, I would say, is, an, is, a, is in a way a scientist because it has to take on the world. It has to, it has to have open mind, an open mind. It has to have open eyes um, to learn quickly. You know how things work, and so we are not. Uh, we, are, we, are, we, we go to every length actually to, to to find out what it is to 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 be able to navigate. And um, as a yeah, I always felt you know a curiosity towards things. And that's, of course, also something that I learned at home. My father is an engineer, scientist, uh, physicist, and we were always confronted, actually, with crazy concept about what the, concepts about and what so the you rebelled is. by going to art school a little bit? Pardon? You rebelled a little bit by going yeah, to art absolutely. school? You got, absolutely. That's exactly what I wanted to say. So it's, it's a bit like a, an escape from that world. And, you know, you got to do it your own way. Um, I know that my father actually was very good at drawing as well. He, had a, he could have also gone this way, but in his time, and he, and he was at that moment to decide um, to, you know, wear a white, uh, you know, engineer um, uh, coat, you know, that was um, just the coolest thing ever. And so probably, uh, you know, he decided for that because that, out of that reason. Um, no, but for me, it was really... Uh, a way to rebel and uh, so I studied art yeah exactly that's how it began and but you know when you go back in time uh, you find out that art and uh, technology they have a lot in common of course actually originally uh, they, they were close together you know and and that's something that uh, that we found out with Urwerk that uh, uh, that I don't have to run away from it that I can actually because I understand of course the mindset of of, of an engineer very well, and I, I also love it, you know. Uh, these are people who uh, want to resolve problems. They live actually for that, and uh, they become extremely creative when, when, there's, uh, when there's something that they have to resolve, a problem. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's in my daily life, in my, in my uh, collaboration with the engineers, or let's say with the watchmakers, uh, this, is, uh, they, this comes in handy, you know, that, uh, uh, that that um, my own mind is also formatted in a way. So I want to mention two important points here when it comes to creating watches. One, every nice watch starts with a hand drawing. I know you don't have to do it, but I still believe that every nice watch starts with a hand drawing and not a computer drawing. It, it moves a computer drawing. And so that's something that's important to say is that if you can't draw or illustrate, very low likelihood that you're going to be designing world-class, beautiful watches. And second is that if you can just draw and you don't think like a manufacturer or an engineer, you'll never draw things that could be built if they're going to be a functioning machine. Absolutely true. No, I, I exactly think like this too. I think drawing is already a very quick way of uh, expressing yourself, of 
looking at the thought. So you, you imagine something and you can very quickly look at it, you know, um, you know, even when you have the skills for it, you can look at it from different sides. Um, and that's, that's uh, super important that you can, uh, like write down a, a thought, you know, that you have and, and further develop it. And if you do that already in the computer, there's many options and a lot of things that are more like in the way of, 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 of thinking. You know? So, so if you already know what you want, of course, the computer is very, is a super tool. And I think to, to somehow, uh, to, to come up with an idea, it's, it's, it's the easiest and the fastest way. But there's also another, another good uh, reason why, why one should uh, draw. Because a drawing is, is uh, not yet super defined. A sketch can be very pure, somehow reaction or pure uh, take on something. And I think if you work on a computer, you are all already too much in the details. For instance, I don't like uh, to, to define the look of a watch in the computer. That's at the end of that process, but out of the same reasons, because I don't want that, you know, the screws are already polished and, you know, the, the surface is already defined because we don't know that yet. It's only in the actual light, the sunlight, or, you no, know, it can also be a, a, an artificial light inside, but it has to be a light that changes when you walk around, uh, that changes, you know, to, uh, you know, clouds maybe, or just uh, by turning the, I think, I think it's the biggest failure in all of industrial design today, especially watches, is over-reliance on computer-aided design. Yeah. It has a necessary uh, purpose when it comes to taking a visual concept of industrialization, but when you skip the concepting phase, the hand-drawing, the experimentation, and you just go straight to the industrialization phase, you have uh, boring watches, redundant watches, ugly watches, like all kinds of problems that you would have avoided. Yeah, because there was like maybe two light sources in the computer that were placed and they give like the, uh, uh, like a, a monotone light on, on things. Yeah. And then you design it like this. Uh, and it's a shortcut. You need to look at the object and that comes from sculpture in my, my sculpting training um, that you need to look at an object in 3D in, in an actual material. So if you have a metal uh, piece in front of you, um, or wood or, you know, rubber, whatever material it is, it will look very different in, in reality, you know, with the, with the actual sunlight, uh, than when you have it in a computer. So, so, and also I like prototypes. I don't need to have everything finished till, till the, till the end polished, you know, and finished. Uh, that closes the, sur the, the, the surface and, and, and it takes away of the, of the, of that sketch. A sketch can also be in, a, in an object. You can sketch an object, you know. So if it's not yet true and true defined, it leaves open, you know, for for development. So the first watches that we create usually are prototypish. So we, we look at them and then we realize, okay, we wanna we wanna transport them there. We wanna try try out a new color. We wanna try out a new mechanism. This is, these are things that you see when you have the piece in front of you in the actual material. Well, let's talk about prototyping. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's so important. Uh, just the other day, I was at a design school and I saw the rooms that are doing clay modeling of cars. And I've always loved this growing yeah. up, seeing how they do these clay. And I and it was in the room and I saw them and I touched them. It's so cool. And, you know, these, these car bodies are kind of the same thing as a watch case, if you think about it. And I've seen certain designers that take the time to create these elaborate prototypes. 
hold them in their hand, see how it feels on their wrist, adjust the smallest curve, make something thicker or thinner. It's sort of painstaking, it's a pain in the ass, but it's necessary so that the object looks good in the real world. I mean, maybe things will change when people um, design watches that only live in the metaverse, but we're mm. not there yet, right? Like, we still want watches to look good. And let's take this back to luxury, because all of this, as you said, takes time because it's not a shortcut. And we always have these questions of, why am I paying so much for this watch? Well, because this guy named Martin spent like six months making prototypes and staring at them on his wrist and taking exactly. a millimeter off here <laughs> yes, and a little bit here. And you're not going to exactly get that. That's exactly what they always elsewhere. tell me. It takes too much time. <laughs> no, but um, uh, the, the, the engineers, you know, they, they sometimes they, they think that uh, it should go quicker. But uh, in fact, it really takes time, you know, to, to sort it out. And um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think uh, it's 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 a, it's a really important, uh, really important point. Now, when you make uh, uh, when you come up with a, with a, an idea, you have it sketched out, and it's in the computer, and you know more or less the way how how the watch should look, and uh, it's but before you actually make it, carve it out of the metal. Uh, you can make studies, of course, now in 3D printing. That's an, an interesting way to do it. But before that, uh, I sometimes carved uh, a case out of wood. Really? Out of yes, wood? Yes, I did that. Or like by like, yourself? Yes, yes, absolutely. My father in his workshop has a, a Schäublin machine, kind of like a, you know. Um, sure. And, and he would uh, sometimes help me, and then I would do it myself to search some elementary uh, uh, bodies and, and shapes to, to find out and to, to also check, you know, how, how a piece sits on the wrist and things like that. And did that make it possible early on for you to have these very original cases? Because I realized from the beginning, I mean, the first watch was round, yes, but very quickly you went into these yes. you know, very interesting shapes. And you were telling me that you had the skill to do these prototypes, essentially, before the advent of 3D printing and stuff like that became popular. Do you think that maybe gave you a leg up? Because a lot of competition, every time they tried to come out with a new thing, it looked weird for a few years. And like a lot of years, they just felt right right away, you know? Yeah, we actually did uh, have these restrictions at the beginning that we had to create something that is uh, machinable on a show with a show, with simple tools. Yeah. So it was all handmade. So that was uh, at the beginning, you mentioned the round watch. And so that was because of those restrictions. It was uh, carved, you know, you know on, on one of those machines by hand, by shaping. And now, you know, with the wash on your wrist, you're talking, you're talking CNC work. Yeah, you're talking yeah that was with, with the next piece, in fact, with the UR-103. With that step, we, we, we were forced because it was not possible anymore to do that by, by hand. And what year was this? This was early 2000s? Uh, yeah, yeah, before even, before a bit. Okay. Uh, and so you were sort of... Well, early 2000, you're right. Absolutely, UR-103, around the time of the Opus... Uh, the Opus project that right, we did with Harry Winston. With, with absolutely. And, and again, I'm just trying to bring it back to CNCing because there was a very real change in the industry. You know, prior to the availability of CNCing and then afterwards, you were able to take watch production in an entirely new direction because with the low, yes. low production numbers you did, even if you were able to machine or, or, or create a, a, a way of having an industrial way, all these shapes you'd have to have crazy volume for it to make sense. Yes. And now you can make individual cases and finish them by hand. Now, this is revolutionary for the watch industry. And 
you know, you were just sort of getting into this, but was this talked about at the time about how big of a deal this was? It was a very big deal for us. It wasn't that much talked about, I think. I mean, this is really something that one has to, to understand. For us, it was a big deal. We, we had to we really realize that the Honda Intrigue, we can't, we can't produce like the way we had, we had done previous models. And so that was a, a challenge. And uh, we had to also have a, uh, an engineer then that worked together with me. So we looked at the, at the shapes, the drawings. You asked before, yeah, how, how does it go from, from uh, you know, a sketch uh, to, to the piece as a, as a virtual object in, in, in the computer? And of course, it has to be then also functional. Um, and an engineer, like let's say a watchmaker, has to somehow sit down and, and, and has to already think about, you know, how to make it waterproof and, and so and so forth. This, this is uh, with us um, was done with, with engineers that uh, that studied watchmaking, uh, so they would sit down with me and uh, we would look at it together. So I learned from them and the other way around. Uh, but that was a very close relationship that uh, that was important. And um, yeah, and uh, with the 103, we learned to include uh, these um, machines, these robots actually created for mass production. But we, of course, use it for for very different means. You know, it's like a, an anachronism in a way to uh, to use this machine for mass production for for a small series, this is this is uh, strange, but that actually lets us tickle out something else, you know, from these machines because nobody has the time normally to to take that process serious. These machines, you can imagine, they are um, designed to 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 make something faster that before when you do it by hand takes more time. Just a, a robot who does that faster and so on. But in fact. You, these machines, they can do uh, things that, that we didn't think about. So can, you can actually tickle out things, um, ways, you know, uh, of creating shapes that, that you didn't think is possible. You have to tempt those guys sitting in those machines, you know. So give me an example of that, because I think this is so important. Because you as a designer, you were educated in sort of this analog world. And you knew you liked to make things. And now you're given a new tool that allows you to make things in a way that your brain never thought about before. Yes. You can get certain angles. You can carve out things. You can just make shapes that yeah. all the machines that you were trained to think were available to you yes. couldn't do. It was a very important thing that I set together with, uh, with the engineers. So I had my ideas. I would explain them how to do it. And then, uh, of course, you have this... this um, discrepancy you know i mean you have you have uh, the, the necessary form and then you have design design also follows form and function but it's always an element that is not defined by by function well but there's a, a bit of space you know left a lot to, of space. to give, to a give lot style space. exactly yeah and uh, but you have to somehow explain it to the engineers <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you have to somehow pack it, uh, you know, in a way that they that they think it's worth to to <laughs> to explore. Every watch designer has a special relationship with watchmakers, and this relationship is what allows the thing to be made. The watchmaker is an engineer who wants efficiency, things to be easy, to make sense. All the things the engineer wants is kind of the opposite of what a a luxury product designer wants, and 
what you see is successful relationships like what Martin and Felix have. So let's talk, let's go back again to how this relationship formed. We, we, we ended at high school and you're going to art school as a rebel. Uh, what was the next step? Yeah, so at the end uh, of, of art school, um, I, I discovered also a bit, you know, how the, the art world works. And when you think about art as an escape plan, you know, at some point this uh, situation is again the same. And what can be the next... The starving artist. <laughs> what can be the next way to escape? You know, the reality that now you have to somehow um, make sense of, of all of it. No, but for me, what was interesting uh, at that moment was uh, film. Film? Yes, and it, it actually came to, to video art. Video art was at the time very uh, new and, and interesting. Video so graphics, had, things yeah, like that. Yeah, new video cameras that actually allowed you to, to work with small cameras, you know, affordable cameras. You could do experiments with it. That was a super interesting time. And we had at our art school, we had a new department, video and film. Um, that uh, that was uh, just like one one year before I I started. It was uh, it was created, brand new. and so it's brand new, and and, uh, and it was super exciting. So I started that after the you know the art uh, fine arts after my diploma. There. So that was super cool, and I started exploring um, editing and time. That was my my interest. Because when you have an editing machine at the time, that was still magnetic tapes, like a U-Matic or, or, uh, or so. And these this machines, um, you, you, you were able actually to, to spool backwards and forwards in time, things like that. Yeah, so if fun. you have a time machine in front of you. And uh, so that was super fascinating um, to, uh, to, yeah, to, to, to explore. I was busy doing that. And that was also the very moment uh, the watchmakers showed up you know, uh, my my uh, artist friend that went to the same uh, you know school, and uh, we had a, an artist group together, United Swiss Artists USA, actually our artist group label. Um, he his name is Christoph Drager. Uh, so we also we lived together. We started that artist group together with some other friends of ours, and and the cousin of of uh, Christoph was Felix Baumgarten. You know, okay. That's actually how we got to know each other. So at some point, the Baumgartners, actually at the beginning, was also his brother, Thomas. They would show up at our parties, you know, they were different. Uh, somehow a bit, uh, you know, the awkward guys who, who don't know what to say. And, <laughs> but it's interesting then to find out, you know, how do they tick? What, 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 uh, what are they thinking? What, what, so we, we were, would sit, you know, listening to 60s punk music because uh, Thomas and and Christoph, they would always go to these, uh, you know, uh, fairs, buy single records and things. And then we would sit at home listening to, to cool uh, music and uh, did all sorts of things that what students do. <laughs> and we had our, you know, very interesting conversations that came together actually at that time. So how did this turn into... Uh, a watchmaking uh, collaboration. Yeah, so so we understood that we have a common ground, as I already said. You know, I have a, some some part of my background is uh, the engineer mind of my father, uh, but my mother is a 
uh, taught me actually more like the, the other side, the artistic side. I remember well when I was uh, a youngster, she would, uh, would like put paper roll on, on, on the table and I would, you know, show her painting and she would show me painting with finger, finger painting. Or, you know, it was, it was really freeing and it was just fun. Things like that, of course, probably um, also had me explore that, that, that side of, uh, of our plan. Okay, but I'm saying it's like, it's not normal the two people hanging out, listening to records, like, you know what, let's make watches. Like, yeah, of course, we, someone we, we had started to have that talking idea. about uh, time. I was thinking, okay, watchmakers, they must know something about time. You know, it's what they measure. So that's probably uh, what uh, started the discussion. It's and more the interest. What what is what is uh, what is what is it that the watch is measuring? You know, that well, actually being at the time because you started the development in the late nineties and yeah. all that. At the time, there was not the sort of independent watch brand market that there is today. There's a little bit of it. A little bit, yes. But it's not like it is today. And many people have always put Orwork as one of the founding members of this new high-end independent watchmaking group. Other brands like MBNF have always been in there, a fellow uh, brand from Switzerland. You know, you, you got lucky to a degree that you sort of were about to discover a trend that was going to happen. Um, but at the same time, there was no signals around you that it would work. Were you no. just sort of young and naive and didn't know what was going to happen and got lucky? Or did you, did you sense something that made you believe that, that there was going to be a market for this type of high-end art? No, we had, to, we had no, I mean, it was really the way, uh, more like, a, like an art project, you know? Like yeah. we, we did it in the same way I was, I was working on other art projects. And maybe the watchmakers had a slightly different idea of, of what the future might bring. But for me, definitely, it was, it was uh, one of the art projects. And what, why do you do it? Because you want to find out something. It's a test. You want to, you want to explore the world. You know, it's basically that. And you don't think necessarily what, 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 what the consequences are of this. And in this age, you know, you, you attempt things. You know, you do things without knowing what's, uh, what's going to happen, what's going uh, to be the, some other outcome of it. And we never thought that we would uh, have success with it or that, you know, never thought that that would be the path for us. You guys have done something interesting that I think very few others have done in this space. And that is make a very conscious decision years ago to limit the size of the company. Yes. You only make a certain number of watches. You only want to have a certain number of team members. Mm -hmm. You basically said, we're going to try to do our best to strike a balance between work and relaxation. Because as we know, when the brands get bigger, more expensive, more headaches, you move away from doing the things you love. And I'm really curious about this because while, of course, every situation is different, it looks like you've struck kind of a nice groove. Is that true? And, and what exactly was the plan? Or am I, am I seeing no, no. a difference from the outside? No, it, it's, it's not that much actually a conscious um, decision, but more, you know, we want to make this kind of watch that is only possible if in a certain um, situation, you can maybe compare it with, uh, you know, how a crystal grows. If you have, you have certain minerals in a liquid, let's say, and, and when, the, when the situation is ideal, when the circumstances are ideal, that crystal can grow. And um, yeah, it's a bit like that. So, so 
in order to create this kind of watch. And that's actually our motivation. That's in the foreground. Describe what this type of watch is. Obviously, you and I know, but even for people that are familiar with your brand, I think it'd be very interesting to hear how you describe your products and what it is you're trying to do with each one. In art, one of the goals is to create the best ever possible. And you don't care, I think, you know, if you take it serious, that's what it is. I know, it's a, it's a, it's a bold statement, yes, but I like you it. Don't, you don't care what that, what that means, what, that, what the consequences are. It's just your goal. And that means you, 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 you put that in front of everything else. You want to do the, just the coolest, the best, you know, the, the most crazy. The, and, then, and, and, and it's an experiment. You want to learn from it. So that force that brings you to the next step, you see, okay, we, 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 we realize this, we do this, and, and how, what could come next? You want to, you're um, somehow proving something to yourself, or you want to test something, you know, is that? You see, oh, that's, that's, that would be possible. Now seeing this, you know, triggers us to, to go that step further. And then you do that because you don't, there's no market, you know, research at all. That was never a concern. So this is an exploration of your whims, your passions, your interests. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe them? It's obviously futuristic. Obviously, it's, it's deeply based in a, a sense of analog design. There's a, a lot of modernity, of course. There's a, there's a deep desire to have originality. Attention to detail, of, of course, is there. There's also humility. While you've done, of course, your fair share of precious metals, that doesn't really seem to be the point. It's about the best it can be as opposed to looking the most expensive as possible. But that's me describing. How do you describe the, the coherent aesthetic uh, philosophy that ties everything together. No, you're right. I mean, there's a set of rules that I learned in art school, design. Yeah, you, I, I, I could never see there's a car over there and I take now the car and, and miniaturize it and make a watch. This is not, it can't work like this. So you, if you're inspired by things, that, so that there's many different things that come together that you somehow fuse. It's like waving, uh, you know, a, a concept. And, and it's, it's not, you know, a you know, copy-paste method. It's, it's really kind of like um, you, have, you have ideas or things that you see, stuff that, that, that fascinates you, that you put in, in a pot, you you in your memory, in your mind. And, and when you create it, then you, you see if, if, it, if it fits into that, into that concept. And you have a set of rules, design rules that are important um, that I learned at art school, you know, but that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, uh, you can't go against these things because it would hurt, you know, it's like, I, I normally find when I, when I design something, I, I, I see the exact line where it has to go precisely. I don't, I know it not like, not like this, not like this, but in the middle or there, you know, I see exactly where the line has to go through. It's something that I just understand. Well, I mean, you have a vision as an artist, mm -hmm. and because you're a trained illustrator, you know how to make a visual representation, a very precise visual representation. And as any artist can tell you, for it to be beautiful, it can't be just almost right. It has to be specific. You know, proportions require that. And you have a particular aesthetic vision. And, and, and that's actually the funny thing that I see artists and engineers complaining about all the time is the slight difference in shape, the slight difference in this or not, that the engineer thinks is inconsequential. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. 
eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. I like, for instance, uh, to, to make an example, I like, for instance, the lunar landing module. Okay. That's an object, when you look at it, it looks strange, but it, it actually really form follows function in the end. Uh, the, 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 you know, it looks very asymmetric, uh, but it looks super interesting, you know, and uh, a bit like nature because it's form follow function. And it's also crazy, you know, because it shows that uh, there's a dream to, to fly to the moon. That's something totally, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an extreme, a strange dream to do that. Why? It's not, it doesn't really make sense, you know. It's an adventure. There's something about the human brain where if we see a machine that, that, is, that does what it's designed to do well, we ascribe value to it. Maybe we need to be educated to understand that it does it well, but when we can recognize that that's a machine that does what it's meant to do well, we want it, we give it higher value, we assign beauty to it. And it's a question. I think it's an interesting question of where does beauty come from in our brain? And I think at least part of it, part of its proportions and shape, but another has to, what does that shape mean to us? You know, that's why we love the car that looks like it goes fast because we like things that perform well. And I know it gets very philosophical, but in the world of watches, I think it needs to be discussed a lot. What does the shape of your watch even mean? And I think that too often designers have a very vague notion of what they're trying to do. And that's where a lot of the mediocre watch designs come from is them not having the vision, right? I think one thing is that when you have a, a medium that replaces an older medium, let's say photography replaced uh, painting, uh, it can result in, a, in a, a freeing of that older medium. Like, to a certain degree, it doesn't have to somehow fulfill the job that it used to have to fulfill. And, uh, and it is in this sense freer. And I think with, uh, with watch design or with watches, it's a bit the same thing. Like at some point, these um, watches, they, they were really, you know, organizing our schedule. They're, they're needed for that somehow. Their function was in this sense clear. Um, but nowadays we have other devices that do that much better. It can be a smartwatch, can be a cell phone that, you know, shows us, you know, much more into details, you know, how our schedule looks and things. So the, the watch actually, the, the watch on, on our wrists can, can become a more philosophical machine and tell us about time, but in a different way. What, what is time? What else is time? And that's what came actually with the use of our time, of our specific time indication, came that this theme into our, into, into, from the very beginning into our world. So you look at something, um, and you, and you, by, by using it slightly different, you, you, uh, enable, um, a thought, you, you enable, um, 
somehow the, the, the person looking at it to, to think about what it is. You know? So the wandering hours, which is not on every watch you've made, but on a lot of them, where did that come from? It was, a, it, was not, it was not a concept that you guys invented, though you really branded it for yourself and everyone associated with you now. Um, but you had to make this decision that this was going to be our signature time indicating. Who was that? Was it you? When we got to know each other, um, I actually have to maybe tell you this story real quick. It's, uh, I was, had in mind to create a machine, a little measurement tool to measure distances in a phase. Because I was at the beginning of uh, digitalization, um, I found uh, I had a tool, like a little object that you used to drive along on a map, drive along a, a road on a map. Oh, I remember. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and it tells you the kilometers. Yeah, it's really and cool. And I thought, oh, that's that's a cool tool to measure actually distances in a face. And if I use this tool on a face, I can make a portrait of a person uh, that consists uh, that, that that is that, that are actually that is trans translated into numbers. So you have, instead of uh, a drawing of the person, you have just numbers, but actually, if you have the, the, the different persons next to each other, you have just a number code. So this that is was the, the kind plan. of artist you were. Interesting, yeah, interesting. That was, that was one idea. So, so I, I started working on this little machine that had a different display because, you know, it's not any more kilometers, it's a smaller, you know, unit. So, uh, I had drawings on my table for this, and then Thomas actually, Felix's brother, has seen this object. And uh, then he looked at it and he said, yeah, the drawings are cool, but, you know, I, I, I worked on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, an object already, but it didn't, I mean, didn't. he said, it won't work like this. Let me do it. He had a, a workshop uh, uh, and, and uh, he stayed at, at uh, my place because he worked, he had a job in Lucerne where I started. And yeah, so, so he made that machine for me. A bit later, he showed up with it. And I, for, I saw, wow, this guy, look at the skills, you know. Wow. It's amazing how he did this, like, fine mechanical piece of... Uh, of uh, Do you still have this thing? I, I don't know where it is. I have my, my first try. I have my sketches. But that piece, maybe Thomas has it with him. I don't know. Wow. But it was, it was amazing, you know, to so, see Okay, this. so how did they get into this? Like, so the, I saw, okay, skills are uh, crazy. Uh, that's interesting. And, and then I told him, let's, let's maybe do something else. Maybe, why don't we make a watch together, you know? And then he said, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. And he had it in mind. And, but then he went to, I think he went to Brighton, to, to England to study antique clockmaking because right. uh, that was his thing. And that's also where, where he has seen, you know, the, the night clock, the Campanus night clock. That's actually the, the, the source of our inspiration for our time indication because right. Uh, the brothers uh, Campanus, they had uh, Roman uh, watchmakers, clockmakers. They had a, got a job uh, from the Pope at the time to create something that uh, was visible at night. You uh, can read the time at night and also quiet, very quiet, quiet was also requested. And they actually, there was kind of a contest and they went and then they made this, uh, this night clocks, Campanus night clocks. What the year father, was this? Uh, I think this is the 16th century, right. Yeah, right in where all these crazy developments took place. In, yeah, in the so beginnings much invention of the watchmaker. Absolutely. So they, like one brother was actually carving the lenses for the telescopes of Cassini. And so, so they were, uh, they were just, you know, uh, the, 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 the technologists, so the, you know, the engineers, you know, in, in the time.
real renaissance era stuff. Renaissance spirit, exactly. So everything is possible. A new spirit came up that was the, that is the spirit of watchmaking. Those values, this inventiveness of these guys is actually what what is important to think about when you when you want to hold up, uh, hold hold high, the, the you know the values of watchmaking. So so yeah so so the the, the this this uh, clock was standing in uh, in the workshop of Felix and Thomas's father. They have seen it there, and after about three years, you know uh, you know of all of us doing their own thing. Um, every now and then we have seen Thomas uh, because he would show up at a party or so. But then maybe three years later he would come with this idea together with, with his brother Felix. And say, you know, now we have an idea. I think uh, Thomas was at the time uh, living in Saint-Croix in the Jura there, and he was uh, hanging out with Juno, with, with uh, Vianney Halter. Like what year was like, this? Yeah, that was shortly before we showed maybe 1995 or so, Mid-90s something, or something yeah, like yeah. that. I was not yet. I, a bit later, I went... Uh, I, 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 Gave up Switzerland for America and came to live in uh, in Brooklyn. What were you doing there? Uh, as an artist, I tried my luck. You know? Really? <laughs> Absolutely, five years. I was already, I left Switzerland for good. I had a, my girlfriend, you know, in, 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 uh, in New York and so on. So what, I was what, what kind of art were you making? <clears throat> we had actually, we did uh, um, concept art that okay. we started already before with our, you know, with our uh, group, uh, United Swiss Artists. But as the name tells you, USA, you know, we were up to <laughs> conquer the big nation, you know. That's funny. So, well, yeah. What was the medium? Are we talking, was it video art? Was it was video art? art. It was actually all sorts of things, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, um, concept art, it's it's like thoughts, you know, that you, concepts that you visualize or that you that you test. So It's, yeah, hard, to, was, it's hard to sell that without a commercial angle. In the no, no, I mean, we, as I said, we never thought about this. We are scientists, we are, you know, we want it's to, it's not important, you know, how you get the money you in. Know, in Switzerland, <laughs> there just seems to be more support for that. You know what I mean? Like, you yes. could go to a local council and be like, hey, we're a bunch of talented art, kids, art help is, us. Art is a slightly more serious thing in Europe. In America, it's the art world, and it's like a very playful thing. But it's a, if you come from from Europe, you have this is like a serious thing. It's a philosophical. It's a profession. Uh, story. It's a, it's a profession, profession, and it's a, it's valued. And I mean, there's even cultures where it's valued higher. But but still, Here's like it's the like the screw off major. Yeah, it's like, you know, I yeah, need to be an guys, art major. You know, what yeah, are you gonna do? Right. So I I I I felt that that it's here. It's a. It's the art world, you know, it's kind of like a funny, you know, to play. Was it things. sad for you to go back to Switzerland? It was not sad. It actually it, it came after these five years where I thought I'm, I'm here. I left Switzerland for good. But uh, it was actually at the very moment uh, where we, we had a, an exhibition, a big exhibition. It's like every 20 years in Switzerland, uh, we have a big, uh, you know, show where Switzerland shows itself to, to the citizens. Kind right. of like, what, what, what does Switzerland mean right now? And it's a big, a big thing. And it happened uh, uh, in, you know, we had like uh, Pipio Tirist, uh, you know, famous Swiss artist who, who was the directress, arti artistic directress of it. We know her and, and we, we worked on a, on a film. We did a film, shot the film together in Japan a bit earlier, you know, where we studied the ways the Japanese um, 
digest catastrophes. That was kind of like, how do they deal with catastrophes? With the island is, is uh, really haunted. They, they have basically, they have to deal with all sorts of catastrophes. And we, there was the earthquake in Kobe, big earthquake. And we went there for that somehow to see how they deal with that. You know, how they, how they live with that. And to, to, to make it kind of like a documentary film that Ungonai. We showed it at the New York Underground Film Festival, and, and, you know. So, so we were like in this scene, you know. But we, 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 we did all sorts of things. Um, what did you learn yeah. from that time? Well, I mean that you do that you, I mean Japan was already something extraordinary. To to travel in Japan, you 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 come to a to a world that is so very different than our world. I mean, one thing, for instance, that I learned is that it's not polite to ask questions in their culture. That's something really different. That's a concept. Not polite to yeah, ask I mean, questions. We went there I wish someone told documentary me that. Film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, you can ask questions only if you're sure that the, the, the person you ask knows the answer. See, otherwise, it's a, it's, you enter the personality and it's something rude. So if you ask somebody in the streets, you know, already, if you would ask somebody in the streets, where's the next post office? And the person doesn't know it. it it, it's uh, taking... Makes them feel bad? It makes them feel bad. And they, in, they need to, though, help you. You see? So they, they would go to the next oh, post office that so they know like about. Rude. It would be like it's rude. rude. It's you, you, and also, if the question is too personal, you know, you enter the personality and you somehow, it's, this is rude. You don't do it. I or see. if the person can't answer their question, they lose the face, you know, that's really t tricky. So if you're a documentary filmmaker, you come from Europe, you know, you think like, oh, let's go ask the Japanese. They are like, at that time, Japan was a, a country, you know, like a, a futuristic planet. It was the, it was the, the future. In the 90s, the yeah. Electric town. The, in the absolute Ohio. apex, apex. Yeah. So we, we were there, we went to... To, to, to visit, you know, the, the guys who are living in the future. Yeah, in Akihabara. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that place. It's, everyone has to go there at some point. It's still cool today. It's still cool, but when I was there last time, it lost a lot of its charm. It, it was really the glowing future planet with all the lights and everything. And when, you, when, when I was there last time, it, it, it disappeared. It, it somehow. It when was, was that? Um, it was together with Felix, you know, for the watches, you know, uh, like, like the ago. last couple of years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the first time I went was in 2004, which mm -hmm. was a little bit later, but it still had yes. a lot of that magic. And I, I know what you're talking about. It changed. But, um, yeah, so, so but, it, was, it was absolutely amazing to travel. We had seven weeks traveling in Japan. Can you imagine this? I mean, we were youngsters, you know, and we had a Japanese friend of ours. He's half Japanese, half Belgium, Ali Morimoto. And he, he took us to places, you know, we went to Minamata, to, also there was the 50 years Hiroshima Nagasaki, yeah, yeah. which is a man-made catastrophe. So we were really like traveling with this strange concept, you know, and, and filming. We filmed, uh, uh, you know, for instance, earthquake prevention uh, exercises in, <laughs> in, in Tokyo, where, I mean, to see that as a European. So how, how does the film hold up? I'm getting curious. I want to see the film now. Ungani, yeah, I haven't seen it for a long really? time. I have to admit. No, no, but we have it, of course. I, 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 is, I have to see we that. We showed it only, like we showed it in art connect context. We showed it in museums. We showed it, uh, we actually did many uh, projects. And the most, uh, actually the one that, that was somehow the, the peak of, of that, that art career for me, 
uh, was we were with our or with our catastrophe uh, film and, and 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 the themes that we were busy with. We did another film that would be called uh, Apocalypse Now, and that dealt with. Um, can you imagine the different? I think that's the name of the film already. It's already, <laughs> yeah, true. But we, we stole it, and uh, that's that's also the concept because we stole um, catastrophe films in a, in in a videotech videotech um, um, where you where you get the VHS tapes. We we took them and we copied them, and then when you have like, let's say twenty or more catastrophe films. The interesting thing is because the narration of this film is always the same. It's like a, a structure yeah. that you find in every film. So it begins, let's say, with um, with you know showing people the way they are now, you know, in their lives. But you already get a bit of an idea of the, how their characters are. Um, maybe one guy's flawed character and another guy's kind of a potential hero. But <laughs> you see that already in the beginnings, and then you know the omen. Something happens. Birds fly up, you know, like a, a dog barks because he feels it. Catastrophe starts, starts to shake. Maybe it's an earthquake, maybe it's something else, an avalanche. But you can cut through, you know, editing. You can cut through all these films and, and you can somehow reveal the, the, the structure behind it. So that we did. And we, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it culminates in, in a, a worldwide catastrophe. Then at the end, of course, when everything is over, you 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 land in in you know in in paradise in, in a way so human beings survive the catastrophe they come out from their bunkers from I don't know where but you can cut through the films and they have in the, in the in all the things you have this and you this you, last, you discovered this we discovered it and we edited you know kind of like Altman style you know because that's where we actually had the the the, the idea from the concept from Altman did his crazy the super famous film because of the shortcuts. Yeah, and there he does that. You know, there's like the earthquake here, in fact, where he can cut in that very moment to different, uh, to different uh, places, because here it's shaking up. You know, with 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 the other guys, it's shaking too. So so you it's can a great style. It. It's a great style. It's a, so 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 we saw that film and it it impressed us and we we we, we used it actually to edit this uh, this uh, apocalypse now film. And then Harold Simon. Harold Simon was a great uh, curator who did uh, the Documenta in Germany, like one of, I mean, would say that the most important art uh, uh, exhibition in Europe. And he was at that time then uh, hired for the Kongshu uh, Biennial. That's a, an art exhibition in Korea. And he uh, invited us to come to Korea to show our film. Oh, cool! That was that was great. So we already living in the States. Christopher and I, and we took a plane to Anchorage and then to Korea, you know, to to go to that exhibition wow. where we would sit with the with the, the, the absolute stars in the art world because he, of course, had only like Wolfgang Leib or I don't know Shirin Eshad or I don't know whoever else was was part of the exhibition and us, you know, small beginners, you know. But that was that was was great. So we. I was at the time I was already working on overt projects. I was doing that as well. Oh, I didn't know you were doing both. And this is the late was, 90s. Yes. Yeah. And when did you fully dedicate yourself to to or work and what was that like? Yes, that, that was actually uh, when we had an exhibition. An exhibition I started talking about this already invited by the Swiss government to create that um, show, you know, of of about Switzerland. 
And because we did our catastrophe stuff, they, they, they um, linked us, asked us to work together with the sponsor. Um, and we have in Switzerland insurances, catastrophe insurances, you know, every canton, every state, so to say, has its own insurance with, with the department, you know, okay. everything. So they, they, they sponsor because they're state owned, so to say, they don't need to make advertising, but they sponsored, uh, you know, a project, uh, for the exhibition. It helps and them sell insurance. Exactly. <laughs> and, and they, um, they worked together with the, with the team. But they weren't successful. The team and the, the, those sponsors, they just couldn't talk together. It just was not possible. It was somehow not working. And then they asked us because they knew that we are busy, you know, you know, making stuff about catastrophes. So they, they, they we, we, we actually came back to Switzerland, start, started the project. And it, it was really a big con. We had a, what we saw in Tokyo was the earthquake prevention, um, um, as I said, uh, centers. Right. And they have a thing, uh, for instance, that's a, like a storm simulator. That's a room that you enter and then you have like a storm blowing at you with uh, hurricane speed. Wow. 120 kilometers wind, uh, like a Beaufort 12 Beaufort uh, wind strength. And you, you have these, you know, things to hold on to, like a reeling, like a... Uh, oh my gosh. You know, and, and, and then you have <laughs> that thing with, a, with rain, you know, blowing at you, but you have to wear something, especially the glasses and so on. And so we, we, we saw that in Japan and we were like, wow, that's crazy. Let's, let's bring the whole thing over, you know, the way it is. <laughs> uh, but then we learned that we have to do our own storm simulator because it had to be super quiet. So outside of that box of that building that, uh, where people enter to, to, to learn storm strengths, you know, it had to be uh, Swiss sound soundproof and stuff. <laughs> so we would work with our, our with our architect friends together. So it became a big project. I had to come back to Switzerland for this. Okay. So I came back. Uh, that was shortly before uh, 9-11. Oh. So I was in New York, my New York girlfriend. We had a bit difficulties in the relationship. So I was like, oh, okay, I go now to Switzerland. We will see what's happening and so And then... 9-11 happened, and I used to live in Brooklyn, actually, uh, in uh, East Williamsburg, as we called it, closer to Bushwick, actually, and my, uh, my subway stop was Montrose Avenue. That's actually in McKibben Street, where we had our, our studios, cool. our loft. It was really an adventurous time, but, but yeah, then that happened. Um, we had a, on top of our building, there was a, a space as big as a, as a soccer field, let's say, just like Wow. Like a, a roof. There was an old uh, sweatshop there, an old factory building. And still, at the beginning, when we came, there were uh, the Hasidic Jewish guys there, you know, on the knitting machines there and stuff. It was really... <laughs> Sounds like you miss it a little bit. I totally miss And yeah. that's why, when I was in New York, I tell you, 25 years later. No, it was just an adventurous time, you know. I'm not saying that it's not still adventurous, but, uh, but it was when you were 30. It's you know. not as much of a frontier. Yeah, no, and I learned a lot, and it was uh, it was for for the. I I always thought if I'm if I'm in New York, uh, the millennium turn, you know, that's the right place to be, and that's that's also that's also why I was there for that time. You need to go back to Switzerland and make a storm machine. I need machine. to go back to make a storm machine, 
And that's what we did. And it took time. And then 9-11 happened, as I said. That was also kind of like a... Like a Wait, did you make the slot machine happen? Did it happen? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, it was then installed and uh, it was a big, a big job, you know. So we were, we, uh, we would hang out in Switzerland. And that brought me closer again to Uruberg, you know, because then uh, we had the Opus 5 uh, project coming up. Um, and I was uh, seeing the watchmakers more often. Before they had to come to New York, sometimes they would show up, you know, I, there was this... this so Orenburg was like a, a hobby, kind of a project at the time? Absolutely, a hobby. It was a hobby for me more because they didn't need me that often because we did, we, I designed, I draw some... Yeah, draw and then the watchmaking side to and they had to take care of it, they had to, had to work, exactly. Yeah. And then I would go see what they did and I would criticize it or we would say, okay, you know, we have to change it or they would come over. Uh, actually, there was this guy, Boris Lietzoff, he had a, on Madison Avenue, had a, a museum, a shop, and he was the guy who had our watches uh, in New York, so on display. And they had also a good deal with the Bergdorf Goodman store. I mean, we were super proud to have our watches, you know, the, in that store, you know, in a luxury, uh, you know, house. It, it's funny, we're, we're almost at the end of our time and we're now we're like just, just getting no, the start of the Orworks. So we'll have to do <laughs> more true. of these. Yes. But, but the last thing I want yeah. to talk about, so we can at least mention it, is the 25 year anniversary. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a big deal. That's, you know, a quarter century. You, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's an established company. You're, you're a real brand right now. And I think one of the interesting things is not just to make your art. That's the first, you know, real accomplishment as an artist. It's like, oh, wow, I somehow live in a world where I can make my art. That's great. That's right. But the next phase after that is, is the people that appreciate the art. Uh, not just the buyers, but really the fans. And I'm just curious how that, how that changes an artist, right? Because oftentimes they say success ruins the artist and we know all these stories. But you, for all this time, continue to innovate. What do you do to both appreciate that, but maybe also filter it out at the same time, if you know what I mean? One thing that is, of course, great if you, if you get an echo on what you're doing. That's uh, something that you need. You need a, you know, a reaction, a reaction of the people who, who see it. Um, you do it, first of all, you do it for yourself in a way, but you always do it also to show people what you can do. You know, that's part of it. And, and it's, of course, uh, great, you know, if you, if you have people who, who like what you do. That's, that's super. That's perfect. And it also shapes what you do because you to learn from them how they perceive it, you know. And so one important thing is to, to travel. To travel. You know, so that's a side that I enjoy a lot. So we go to to the, to where our retailers are. What I'm doing right now, actually, that was not possible, you know, a short while ago because of COVID. Uh, and there, I learned also what a, what a terrible thing it is if you can't do it. First of all, I like traveling because you see when you travel, you see everything again anew. It's like being being put in that state you know that you're that you know from being a child you know you you see many things that you don't 100 percent understand you know and, and you want to understand it and, and so on um for me here to be uh, in, in la for the first time it's it's great today we did a, a little uh, drive along the uh, you know along the coast you know so so i it's it's just great to do that so so you see new things you you this is kind of like the field research could call it but then also that you that you like talk about your your work 
in interviews as we do it right now, but also now with, with guests. You know, we had a, an incredible trip starting in New York where we had our auction and meeting people, you know, like people now this time from the Swiss Institute, actually a place that I, that I knew back in the day, you know, and uh, was very important for me. I went many times to the Swiss Institute because uh, they, they, there was, it was a place to meet other artists, you know, so right. really cool. And now they approached us independent from, 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 you know, that time, obviously. Uh, but uh, it's, it's now a possibility to bring it back again, you know, with, with art and, and with my, with that part of the history uh, of, of me, you know, back in New York. So yeah, it's like 25 years. <laughs> Seems to be a good thing, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit of history already to look back on. So I have a question about the aesthetic. And you said something very interesting where you get feedback and then you kind of mm -hmm. want to give people what they want. And there's sort of two ways of looking at this. That the entirety of what you've ever wanted to do with watches is represented in the work body of work. Or one direction you went on just seemed to be successful and you're like, well, I just got to keep going there. But maybe the Martin who likes watches also in a vacuum would have done other things. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, does this represent the entirety of your watch taste or is this like, Oh, this is working and I'm just going to keep, you know, staying in this lane because that's what the brand wants. What you realize is that things take more time. You know, you have an idea, an idea can come very quickly. Um, that's how you start. But then when you start developing it, you have to make it, um, yeah, you also see, that's actually an art professor who told me at the time that it's Roman Sigler, really cool art, Swiss artist, and he was our professor. He said, don't play with too many tools, you know, too, too many things. You just have to kind of like find your, 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 your toys, you yeah. know, that you, that you play with. And yeah, that's, that's, there is a truth in it. You know, you, you discover that you, you already, you know, in, in one branch, you know, you have a lot of things to resolve and you, you find out there's many decisions to take already there. So, so in a way, you don't have enough time you know, to, to develop other things. But you can try every now and then, like what we did with, for instance, with the EMC. There's a, that's a branch uh, that, that also, you know, follows other themes. And every now and then we did that. And we eventually, I mean, another good thing that you discover when you, when you actually do it a bit longer, and you really have a bit more energy into in what you do, that you can start working together with whomever you want. So Urbeck is known a bit. You can now more or less decide, you know, let's let's do a collaboration with, with these guys. You know, they don't even need to be from the from the watch world. Um, it's it's you can you can yeah, you can do these kind of things. It's just very enjoyable. Martin, this has been really fantastic. I want everyone to go to the orwork.com website and see uh, the 25 years of watches that you've made. You can go to Bought to Watch, where we've covered Orwork many, many times over the years. Martin, we clearly have to have another one of these conversations. And we've already had Good a podcast pleasure. with Felix, so we're going to have a, a, an Orwork heavy year, I guess. Uh, Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>